Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up on Front Row, unions set their sights on North Carolina. The New York Times editorial board weighs in on free speech. And Congresswoman Deborah Ross wants to fast track the adoption process for Ukrainian orphans. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the House, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Donna King with Carolina Journal. Donna, why don't we begin with the unions and their efforts to gain a foothold in North Carolina? Sure. As we all know, we've talked about a lot of on this show. North Carolina's economy is growing very quickly. Got a lot of manufacturing here. And one thing that that's also drawn is the attention of labor unions, of course. Now, labor unions are already in North Carolina, but North Carolina just celebrated 75 years of being a right-to-work state. Uh, what that means is that workers don't have to join a union. They can, certainly, uh, but they don't have to as a condition of getting or keeping their job. Uh, and it really outlaws closed shops in North Carolina, which means that you can't require or garnish wages for an for a worker uh, in order to join the union. And one thing that we've seen is that even the vice president, Kamala Harris, was at Durham Tech uh, in the last, uh, like earlier this month, and she said in her comments that we need to create more union jobs in North Carolina. Is um, the governor on board with that? I would imagine that he's been endorsed by the AFL-CIO and, and a lot of other labor unions, but what we're really seeing nationwide is a, a drop in the num amount of union uh, membership that we've seen. It was really at its height in the 40s and 50s, and it's dro dropped considerably since then. And I think that a lot of these unions see North Carolina as a place to grow and, and try and un unseat our right-to-work status. And possibly because of changing demographics, a lot of folks are moving in. Robert? Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you notice is North Carolina can, can always been one of the lowest two what comes down to percentage of people who are in unions. But I think one of the big issues that you see with unions is coming out of the pandemic. And a lot of the pandemic has exposed situations where workers didn't feel protected. And so they want an opportunity to get protected. You've seen the latest Gallup poll that even 47% of Republicans uh, start to favor unions. And I think what it is is that you do see a reduction in unions basically because of the kind of jobs that are out there. Like you don't necessarily need a union at Apple or something like that. But on the flip side, on the manufacturing jobs, I think a lot of people did feel exposed during that time and want to have the right to at least have the opportunity to unionize. Mitch, how would uh, unions impact the job creators? Well, certainly job creators would look at this uh, with some Mom concern. With some concern. Now, big corporations often like unions. I mean, we've seen corporations that have moved into North, to North Carolina that are that have European bases where they're used to dealing with the unions. And sometimes those big operations like to work with the union because it's easier to deal with one person and deal with your thousands of workers. But mom and pop operations, it does make it more difficult. And certainly there is a big difference between the private sector unionization and public sector unionization. In the private sector, uh, the union may want more benefits, more pay 
pay, but they also know that the business has to survive for them to be able to keep going. So they do have some limits. Whereas in the public sector, basically you have the people who are in a, a union or a union-like setting bargaining with politicians rather than with the people who really pay the bill, the taxpayers. Joe, are union members still a reliable voting block for Democrats? Well, I think it still is the bulwark of uh, the Democratic base. And organized labor has long been affiliated with the Democratic Party on a political basis. And, and interestingly enough, in this conversation, we talk about it as a political factor. Nationally, about 10% of the private workforce is in a union, but a full third of public sector employees are in a labor union. One, one of the attractive features of North Carolina as a place for unions is the fact that our public employees, state and local government employees, are prohibited from being in a union. There's no collective bargaining allowed for our public sector employees. We also very astutely decided many years ago to singularly manage the retirement system for state and local government employees, which is a big hallmark of what unions advocate for their employees, a solid ret retirement system in place. We have a really strong retirement program here, so I don't know that a union would have appeal to public workers in North Carolina. Donna, wrap this up in about 25 seconds, please. Well, I think overall we're seeing some little signals of, of unionization in places like Charlotte. There's a Starbucks, the Charlotte Observer recently unionized. But overall, I think thing, groups like the NCAE, who have had dropping in membership, they only represent about less than 20 percent of teachers now. Um, I think what we're really seeing is that people are recognizing that the time may have already passed for that because there is social media. There are ways for, for um, employees to work with their employers. Great conversation. I want to turn to the New York Times op-ed uh, editorial op-ed on free speech, Mitch. There's no clearer example of elite mainstream opinion in our country than the New York Times editorial board. And so that's why it was interesting to see the op-ed piece in the New York Times with the headline, America has a free speech problem. And the idea was that we have gone way too far in this idea of trying to cancel people with whom we disagree. And the editorial uh, mentioned people on the left and on the right. Uh, to, uh, and it also came along with a poll that said that there were 55% of people who said that they had held their tongue, wouldn't say something that they thought might be controversial because they thought it would come back to bite them. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me was the reaction. Uh, people on the right often criticize what the New York Times writes. That's no surprise at all. But, but they're all in on this one. But, <laughs> pe but, but people on the political left were the ones who looked at this editorial and said, oh, no, what are you talking about? Cancel culture. Is this such a thing? And why are you talking about it? That, to me, was the most interesting piece. Well, you know, Donna, that inter is interesting about the left because when I came up, the left wanted government out of your life, and they wanted free speech. I think they've done about a 180, haven't they? I, it's funny that you say that. I was listening to a podcast this morning about that very thing, that the the commentators were saying that I think the traditional values of even like the 60s hippies are much more libertarian uh, in some cases than they would be today. But really what we're talking about in many cases is college culture. We're seeing a lot of this on campuses where universities are trying to implement a free speech policy, uh, but but it only matters how it's put into practice. And, and my own children go to a large North Carolina university, and I see it in grad students and professors where students are self, are, they're self-silencing because they are concerned about their grades, their concerned about being singled out or canceled in some way. So we're really seeing it on college campuses. Are kids, Joe, worried about being shamed by other kids and by their, their peers? I think we are at a point in our history where folks are concerned that something they say may cause 
distress or discomfort to somebody else, and perhaps it is an inhibiting factor, but the freedom to say what you want to, like all of the other freedoms that we enjoy in this country, it's really a work in progress. I mean, we, we famously have said, your right to swing your fist ends at the end of my nose. And so we've got to figure out what that balancing act is between things that people say that are protected by our right to free speech and things that do legitimately cause offense and are difficult to hear or even may put people in peril for one reason or another. But I, I think ultimately part of the problem is the lack of civil discourse. Maybe we need to Great encourage point. more open candidate forums where the two, not Lincoln Douglas, where they travel on the train together across right. Illinois, but where candidates for office you have to come together. On that one? The, <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. But where the candidates have to be together and, and engage in a spirited debate, but show civility towards each other, that's the part of it that I think is missing. You know what I think, though, Robert? I think Google and, and uh, Twitter are driving the narrative a lot of times, and there's not equal access for opinion. Well, and I think it depends on where you're coming from, because, for instance, I would just say when you're talking about the right and the left and who's really falling in on this, if I could get the penalty that Joe Rogan got and get a $100 million contract for getting canceled, I would get canceled. Sign me so, up. You know, so, so I think we You would do, do it for half that. Exactly. <laughs> so I think we kind of overstate what happens, but I do think that the point about what happens with kids is true, but I don't think it's about cancel culture. It's about social media. And what's happened with social media is, is just that. I mean, I have to talk to my kids all the time, my daughter especially, because she's of that age, and just say, look, it's going to come back someday, and somebody's going to take this comment that you made 35 years ago, and they're going to blow it into something that it wasn't when you intended to make it. And that's what's really got us to this point, and that's where we've got to get the horse back in the barn. When to she's, be, when when she's sitting there waiting for her Supreme Court confirmation, oh, my dad told me not to write this. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. To be continued, I want to talk about Deborah Ross. She had a very unique thing she wants to do as far as the orphans coming out of Ukraine. Yeah, uh, Representative Deborah Ross in the 2nd uh, Congressional District here in North Carolina wrote a letter to the administration encouraging some expedited uh, rulemaking that would make it easier for families that had already started down the pathway of adopting Ukrainian children to make it easier. For example, allowing those hearings to be held at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C., as opposed to having to go to the Ukraine. But this is recognition of the humanitarian aspect of this military conflict. Uh, Representative Ross pointed out that at least 100 children are known to have died already in this conflict, probably more that have yet to be reported. And to her credit, sees this as a value-added proposition for this country to lend aid and comfort to the Ukrainian people who are suffering so dramatically. The president announced this week they're going to open up uh, 100,000 slots for Ukrainian immigrants. And I'll bet it would be more. Yeah, and a billion dollars more for humanitarian relief. But I, I, there's really two things. This makes sense, and Representative Ross, I think, is a, appropriately encouraging the administration to take this action. But I think this is just an example of Representative Ross is going to start taking a higher profile on some of these bigger international, national types of issues. So credit to her for having done this. Donna, 10 million people I see are displaced in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. That's the largest. Uh, it's the largest in since World War II. World War II, yeah, years. Um, one of the things I would say that's important about what she's proposing is that it's kids that are already in the pipeline. They've already uh, been adopted. They've already been put up for adoption in one way or another. Because I think it is very concerning to me to unilaterally lift the any kind of restrictions or, or the process in place to adopt children from another country uh, before we know that their families are not living or don't want to be reunited. I mean, it's complete 
chaos there. And this happened to Ukraine in the 90s, which I think is one reason why they've put a moratorium on these on these adoptions, because there were children hosted all over the world and many never went back to reunite with their families. We saw it during uh, the Haiti earthquakes. Kids were literally disappearing from the streets and orphanages were being emptied. Families didn't even know till they went to go find them. Um, it is a, a horrible situation. Children are regularly displaced from their families during times of war. So a well-intentioned policy that lifts international adoptions from Ukraine across the board could cause more damage than than we expect. And we've seen plenty of that over the last two years. Robert. Yeah, I think Donna's points are excellent. That's a good thing that I, that I really respected with Representative Ross is the fact she understood, get the folks who are in the pipeline already, who have already gotten in the process, let's get this done. Really good point. And do everything that we can. Do everything that we can to help out because, I mean, that. We haven't, even though we've had all this coverage, we have not gotten the scale of how horrible that situation is right now um, when you really go through it. You're talking about a, you know, an area that was mostly at peace and a first world country that suddenly has been thrown into such chaos. And every parent is thinking about their children. And so I applaud her for this. My friend. I echo the kudos for Representative Ross for taking this up. And also, I think it's an important reminder of just how complicated it is to get involved in something like this, an adoption from overseas. Uh, there are lots of rules. And as Donna pointed out, you can lead to some unintended consequences if you just say throw the rules away. But that doesn't mean that the rules that we have all need to stay in place exactly as they are. Perhaps this is a good opportunity to rethink some of the things that block people from making one of these adoptions that could be such a major positive change in kids' lives. Joe, wrap this up in about a minute. Well, th I think this is probably just the first of many types of initiatives like this that are necessary, given the terrible scale of human suffering that we're seeing coming out of the Ukraine. And I think it's absolutely true, probably the atrocities that have been committed already are unknown to us. But as the revealed, I think as a nation, we have a moral obligation to offer aid and support to the Ukrainian people. Okay, I want to move on and talk about Katanji Brown, Judge Brown, and her nomination process for the Supreme Court, my friend. Well, I, I think one, it's a, it's a truly historic and monumental moment, and I think that, that that's gotten a little bit lost, but I'm glad to hear when I talk to, especially young people, that get a chance to see this, that they understand the enormity of the moment. Um, what I see in Judge Brown's confirmation process is the fact that we've got to figure out how to fix this system. Because what it's become now is that no matter your qualifications, no matter how you know, well you've done, no matter how perfectly you've led your life, that everything seems to be falling on partisan lines. I hope to see a, a unanimous support or close to unanimous support for, but I think the reality is that you're not going to see that. And I think that we've got to be better than that. When you look at her qualifications, she's literally got the background that you would draw up. If you had a chance to draw up and say, okay, we need a new nominee, just don't talk about race, party affiliation or anything. This is, these are things we want. We want somebody who's had extensive experience in private practice, somebody who's had experience in our criminal system, somebody who has been a judge in some capacity before a federal judge, and now we're putting her here and, you know, and has the educational background that you want. So it's, uh, it's disappointing in some senses to watch the process, to hear some of the questions. I think that this goes back to Joe's earlier point about the loss of civil discourse. I mean, there was a time where no matter how much I disagree, like I'd love to go back, for instance, to Judge Antonin Scalia's 
confirmation. Well, it really started with Judge Bork uh, and oh, yes, Kennedy. It did. I mean, so let's it did. be honest about that. Donna, what was your take on the hearings? Um, I found it to be more civil probably than... Uh, than Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh, certainly more than Kavanaugh, but also more civil than Amy Comey Barrett. So um, I think that that was one of the things that I liked initially is all the members of the of the um, Senate committee were saying, like, this is not going to be a circus. Her it is not going to fall apart. Uh, her sentences uh -huh. of uh, child pornographers... Absolutely. Uh, there were a few... There were about three or four um, senators on that committee that were very alarmed at her tendency to under-sentence, to deliver less than uh, the federal recommended guidelines for child porn. That was something that came up a lot. Um, and and then also there were a few other things that really signaled her position as on the more progressive end of the Democratic Party. But again, uh, she had the qualifications. Um, she did not, one thing I did like hearing was that she didn't seem to view herself as some sort of super legislator. Uh, she was very clear that she felt like laws came from Congress. Uh, and so so that was that was a plus side, but we did see a lot of that concern about the treat her sentencing of uh, child pornography and crime in general. But mm -hmm. let me ask you, Mitch, uh, how would you frame her judicial philosophy? Well, I would think you would say is a, a little bit left of center. I mean, there are some issues where you see that she is uh, more likely to rule with the progressive way of thinking than with the, uh, the conservative way of thinking. I think one of the things that was interesting in the discussion that she had with Senator Tom Tillis, who, to his credit, said, hey, this is historic. We all, whatever, however you're going to vote, this is historic. We have an African-American woman who's going to have the chance to sit on the Supreme Court. But he also said he thought that perhaps one of the flaws in her record is a, a, a tendency to show too much empathy to the criminals, the people who people, most people would say, if you commit this major crime, you should do the penalty, do the sentence, do the sentence as it's spelled out in the law. And some of her sentences had gone sort of to the lower end or even lower than what the lower recommended sentence is. So I think that is kind of a clue of where she stands on some of these things. In other cases, we don't really know because all of these nominees have gotten into the habit of not telling you any more than they have to about what they actually think. Yeah, that's kind of become pro forma, hasn't it? That really, I think it's called the Ginsburg rule. I mean, when, yeah. when, when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was up there and she was asked questions, she often said, I can't tell you because this could be a case that could come before me. Mm -hmm. Joe, final thoughts in about 30 seconds. Well, I think the most uh, significant thing I saw, Dick Durbin, the Democratic senator from Illinois, presided over these hearings, said that he felt like the Republicans were testing out messages for November, that a lot of the issues that they raise, critical race theory, crime, gender identity, sorts of things, are right. very likely to be issues for Republican candidates in the fall. And so to some extent, I think a, a confirmation hearing, you know, we say there's the thing, and then there's the thing about the thing, and then there's the thing about the thing about the thing. And that's kind of what this was, an opportunity for Republican okay. legislators to point to the issues they think are going to resonate with voters. Okay, we want, we've got to move. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. The state Supreme Court is taking up a very interesting case that comes out of Durham. This is involving a police sergeant who was fired based on an incident in 2016. He was a hostage negotiator. He was involved in a, with a fellow who had been uh, barricading himself in an apartment for a couple of hours. And after two hours, and he had threatened to shoot himself, the guy said, I'm going to uh, smoke a marijuana blunt. And the police officer, rightly thinking that might be a bad idea, said, look, I'll let you smoke the, the blunt if you surrender. The guy surrendered, got to smoke the blunt. Four months later, the police department fired him, not uh, necessarily following its normal procedure. So uh, the police sergeant sued to get his job back. 
uh, and the courts have thrown out the case, except the Court of Appeals said maybe he has a, cape, a case based on the violation of his right to the fruits of his own labor. It'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court goes along with that. Robert. Regional public colleges help build economic resilience, and that's something that we found from a study, and I think what was uh, really interesting for me is not only in the traditional sense that you think about how colleges help the community, but in the sense of when we go through an economic downturn, colleges are best suited to resist that economic downturn. So job safety is still there, economic stability is still there, and so that's further evidence that we got to keep investing in public colleges. So they're the anchor. Joe? Yeah, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is an entity created out of the housing crisis back in 2008 to evaluate financial services sector, announced that they're evaluating whether or not there is inherent bias in artificial intelligence that's used to make determinations in that sector of our economy. H here, famously, you would say so. I reading by you? Well, yeah. <laughs> 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 Not, not specifically. So. <laughs> but the, the concern is, even though you'd say that an algorithm is really just a mathematical calculation based on data, but because it's human beings that are supplanting the data, that there might be some inherent bias in the product that comes out. So the decision on the cost of insurance or a particular loan terms or that are calculated automatically by these algorithms may actually have the same inherent bias in them that the human beings previously doing those calculations had. Donna. Um, so my underreported is actually about infamous Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, that story has been kind of relegated to this right-wing conspiracy theory uh, pool in mainstream media. But guess what? It's out now. It actually was his laptop. He's admitted that it was. And on it is that he was peddling influence inter internationally well, while his dad Times was vice president. Off on that, right? New York Times has finally signed off. They buried it down on page 20 while everybody was watching Ukraine. Uh, but now it's out. And I think one of the things that I take away from this is there was a letter of 50 leaders of our national security team that signed off on a letter saying, you know what, this was all BS, that we, we support them. Um, well, those people are actually the ones who are in charge of getting data to send young men and women, our service members, into battle, I want to know that they are not politically charged. Are they, there any follow-up by the media with them? I've, I've seen very little. I think this will come up, though, don't you? If Republicans, there'll be investigations if they retake the Congress? Uh, probably, but I think that that initial story being kind of pushed aside into this sort of, uh, you know, conspiracy theory cesspools will make it very difficult for the actual story, which is only now coming out, to get any traction. Okay, let's go to lightning round, Mitch. Who's up news down this week? What's up? It's legal fireworks in this case involving North Carolina's Opportunity Scholarship Program. There is a lawsuit that's challenging them. This is the school vouchers that we're talking about. And the lawyers in, involved in this case are, are having a, a fight back and forth. It, it seems that the lawyers challenging the vouchers are conducting all of this discovery where they're going to dozens of private schools across the state and asking them questions, even though they're not parties to the suit. The state court of appeals has shut down discovery in that case. My down, also on the judicial front, Judge David Lee, he's been overseeing the Leandro school funding case for several years. He was removed this week and replaced. Robert, who's up and who's down this week? Sadly, uh, deaths from opioids are up in North Carolina in 2020. Uh, we had a 40% rise, but um, the good thing is that um, A.G. Stein was able to get a settlement that we're hoping will help pay for more education, more support, and to do something about that. Well, I, I read where... Uh, 18 to 45, 100,000 uh, folks have died yes. from fentanyl overdoses. Yes, and, and it's that, frightening. That signals to me we got to close the border. Go ahead, sir. Well, I, well fentanyl doesn't come from the border. That's well, yeah, it, come, it comes across the border. <laughs> you know, that comes from China and everywhere yeah. else, too. So, 
um, down the public's opinion of the legislature, whether you're Republican or Democrat, they hate us all right now because they think all we're doing is spending time on redistricting and we're not spending time on the issues that really matter to them. Okay, Joe. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's up? People's continued concern about what is fake news. Ben Wallace, the defense minister for uh, Great Britain, was the subject of a Russian prank. He thought he was on uh, a communique with the prime minister of Ukraine. It turned out to all to be fraudulent. But the Russian news media pushed out these videos contending that this was actually an interview with the, with the British defense secretary. Uh, interestingly enough, the British defense secretary's office is investigating how a prankster got into a conversation <laughs> in the first place. Uh, down, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, the Biden administration looking to close the pay equity gap by making sure that contractors with the federal government are evaluating okay. their pay structures to make sure that there's not an inequity between men and women. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Um, up, it's got to be potential fraud in mismanagement of $6 trillion of COVID, uh, COVID taxpayer money. Uh, there was a, It is a, a report from the state auditor's office questions Golden Leaf's process for distributing $83 million. This foundation was to be given grants to small businesses across the state following COVID uh, shutdowns. Um, but there was very little tracking, the auditor's office says, and they don't really okay. know who got it, how much they got. Um, in the end, the Secret Service Agency says about about $100 billion of COVID money has been misappropriated. Down, please. Down state debt. There's a new report out that says that North Carolina's state debt has dropped uh, from almost $6.5 billion in 2013. Now the state has about $4 billion. Okay, debt. headline next week, Mitch. New attack ads crop up in North Carolina's Senate race. I'm shocked. <laughs> headline next week, my UNC friend. UNC in the Final Four. Think they make it? What happens to Duke? UNC in the Final Four. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, headline next week. Eclipsed by some of the bad news coming out of the Ukraine area, the Taliban has gone back on their promises not to shutter academic institutions for young girls. And so we're seeing the Taliban act like it did when it was in control of Afghanistan before. Sad. Headline next week. I think week. Babylon B is going to be back on Twitter. They're going to cave to public pressure. If you know the B, you know that they have built a huge following after being canceled by Twitter. Tell people what the Babylon Bee so is. So the Babylon Bee is a satirical news site, um, kind of mad magazine for the digital age, um, and okay. huge following, and they've gotten a lot more fans since being canceled by Twitter. That's it for us. Great job, team. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.